This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Dave Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, We are in a little bit of a quiet period for award season, which is very interesting because I I think we always think of it as being this mad dash from January to March, and it will become that. Um, uh, We're going to get a little bit of a rundown of what's ahead. But right now we're kind of taking a break and answering some of your questions. Thank you to so many listeners who sent them in. Um, Lots of burning topics coming ahead. Um, But Rebecca, I was going to ask you first to kind of give a sense of where we are in the calendar since you will be traveling to the next event for us in Santa Barbara. Uh, You're going to hang out with Harry and Meghan and then go talk to some movie stars, I guess. Yeah, I'm actually staying at Harry and Meghan's house. They mm-hmm. opened it up for me. It's super Those nice, very nice of them. them. Um, yeah. No, but yeah, uh, Santa Barbara is coming up um, this week. I'll be heading out on Thursday through the weekend. Each night they honor a different person, nominee. And, you know, I think we're looking at a few uh, potential winners who are going to be there. I'll be there for uh, Angela Bassett on Thursday night, Kate Blanchett on Friday night, um, and then Jamie Lee Curtis on Saturday night. And then it continues. Um, Brendan Fraser's being honored. And then there's one night where they do a whole group of of promising uh, actors. It's now a mix of some nominees like Carrie Condon and Stephanie Hsu and uh, Ki Hui Kwan, but also Daniel Deadweather will be there, Nina Haas. So that one's really exciting because it's it's a group of them all together. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a nice event. A lot of LA goes up for it. And then it's sort of a mix of people from town and, and uh, you know, well-dressed Santa Barbara locals. So it's a good one to see. There, a bunch of the directors will also be up there, the Daniels and Martin McDonough. So it, it'll be a busy campaign stock for the next week. Are people tend to be more chill at this point because they've gotten the nomination, like, you know, maybe the nerves of whether or not they'll win have, hasn't set in yet? Or is it all just very intense? I feel like it's pretty intense because now they have hope. <laughs> It's like now you're only one of five. And uh, to me, that feels like I think we're seeing a few actors do a little more press in phase two than we did in phase one. So unless you're in one of those races that feels like a lock, I think there's, um, you know, people really go for it in phase two. Now, Judd Hirsch might be a little bit more relaxed than like uh, Michelle Williams at this (laughs) point in the race. Um, well, but David, you'll, on Monday, you'll be at the Oscar luncheon, which from everything I understand is kind of more of a chill event, or at least where you really are just happy to be nominated. Sure. Uh, there's no, <laughs> there's no eyes on you or anything like that. Um, 
Yeah, we'll see the nominees in their finest daytime formal on Monday. And it really is the first big opportunity of phase two for all of the nominees to be in the same room and essentially for us to take the temperature of where uh, the industry is exactly with some of those contenders. Rebecca went first last year, uh, and I remember you told us about you know, all the applause for CODA whenever those nominees' names came up, and those are the kinds of indicators that are very important in events like these. And in this in this case, you have a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once um, having many, many nominees uh, at this luncheon, which is kind of a huge lift. Although one thing I realize is that this will be an event unusually light on Academy members because so many of them are first-time nominees. So maybe we can't pay as much attention to that just because... Oh, because the nominees themselves aren't in the Academy? Yeah, not all of them are, you know. They they will be next year, um, but it's going to be a different kind of dynamic a little bit because these are all, in one way or another, newcomers, and obviously some of them are still voting Academy members even if if they're first-time nominees. So we will just have to wait and see. But um, yeah, I'm definitely looking out for... Just how loud the applause for Andrea Riseborough is, et cetera, et cetera. Well, she's on the catering staff for the event, I think. So she'll- catering staff. Um, she's basically doing Coach everything. Check. Right. Yeah, <laughs> check. She's parking step. some cars. <laughs> Valet check in. Yeah. I, I I wonder if someone has done this as cross reference, like how many of the first time nominees were already Academy members. Like it wouldn't surprise me if Colin Farrell was an Academy member already. Um, Maybe I'll go do that at some point because it's, it's always surprisingly hard to figure out. But you're right, David. I'm sure, like Stephanie Shu, I'm imagining, is not an Academy right. member. Or yet. the Daniels, I would assume yeah. not, um, et cetera. Wait, sorry, but what is the distinction? They'll, they'll be at the luncheon, though, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. Um, usually at that, at that kind of luncheon, you're surrounded by more previous nominees who therefore are voters. And so you, when you take the temperature of the room, you're getting a better sense of where an Academy group is, a sample. Um, yeah. Whereas in this case, it's because it's more newcomers, it's less of a representative sample of the Academy itself. Yeah, and then you imagine those like VFX scenes where it's like six people and they have a combined like 30 Oscar nominations between them. So there's there's some firepower in there too. Single-handedly vaulting Andrea Riseborough <laughs> to the win. <laughs> yeah, um, well, we got into Andrea Riseborough so much faster than I expected. Um, <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> <laughs> She'll be the main topic. I mean, truly, clearly she is high on other people's minds. I think Best Actress would probably uh, involve the most speculation from our listeners even in any other year. Let us not forget the Penelope Cruz surge of the this time last year. Um, so to jump into the mailbag, we had three questions about Best Actress that I kind of want to group together um, from Frank, Jesse, and Amy. Um, and I can start with the Andrew Riseborough aspect of it because I think we had thought about this ourselves in some way about what that whole kerfuffle around to Leslie kind of would lead to in terms of what we're still perceiving as the frontrunners and Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. And I think Amy might sum it up the most succinctly. I'm thinking that a lot of people who would have voted for Kate Blanchett will end up voting for Andrea Riseborough, which will end up splitting that vote, making room for Michelle Yeoh to win. Um, and then Jesse kind of had a similar question of seeing Academy members revenge voting for Andrea. Um, and the version of it I had thought of, which I think I discussed with some of you guys, is that it might make the excitement of voting for Kate Blanchett, someone who's kind of in the establishment, presumably like in good standing with a lot of the people who pushed the Andrew Riseborough campaign, not that she had anything to do with it, but it might say, hey, let's make room for more of a newcomer like Michelle Yeoh. Um, does anyone else have a firm sense of, or I mean, not a sense, who knows what's happening? This is all guesswork, I, I guess, about yeah. where this might all lead. I mean, I think that theory would hold water if Glenn Close hadn't won over Olivia Coleman, you know, but obviously she, Glenn Close did win. <laughs> um, 
showing no signs of apathy <laughs> in voting. Uh, no, I think it, that it's there's totally room for that. I think actress is is an interesting category, not just because of the Andrew Riceboro of it all, but she. I, I kind of think that she's probably. I think I wrote something about this for a, the awards issue. Like she got all that steam behind her from the actor branch. And I don't know if that's going to be in the other, you know, now everyone's voting on these nominations. So I don't know if like sound or whatever else are are really in in feeling the same way about that particular campaign. But I think there definitely is space where people are like, well, Blanchett's going to win. So let me vote for my pet favorite. Um, And that could be any number of the other nominees. Um, But I think, yeah, Michelle Yeoh is, is probably really high on that list, considering how many other nominations that movie got. Yeah, I think regardless of how much this dynamic plays out and in what way, because um, to Richard's point, the majority of Oscar voters did not weigh in on that nomination. And we don't really know how much they care about or have seen this movie, um, because this was definitely an actors driven campaign, as we have discussed ad nauseum. Um, It's also just a case where you have kind of bunched together uh, a few of these contenders who have different kind of narrative kinds of narratives going for them. And I think Michelle Yeoh really stands out in that regard, especially given that we know that the Academy as a whole loved everything everywhere so much with so many nominations. Um, I think she stands to benefit from all of these questions and things at play. So I, I do agree with that listener's inclination. There was a, there was a moment at critics choice, you know, they, they won, a lot. They won director, they won screenplay, they won key one, and then Michelle did not win Kate won. Um, and then they won, I forget, what what is it called? Best film there. And when they took the stage, they one of the directors particularly, you know, pointed out this movie could never have been made without Michelle. And you felt in the room that people were kind of bummed that she didn't get her individual hmm. award, because it is true. I mean, that movie, it's all because of her. And it did feel weird that everyone got an award basically except her. And so I do wonder if if that is, is going to stick out when we're talking about the full Academy body versus, you know, just the acting branch that did the nominations. But then the flip side of that, which... Um uh, which Jesse brought up in his thing, just the idea that everything everywhere is such a strong best picture contender that then they'll say like, oh, well, you know, that's going to win best picture. So maybe we'll vote for Kate so that Tar wins something like it's it's hard yeah. to know how often voters think that, especially a massive group of voters. But that seems like a, a fair way to think of it on, on the flip side of that. And also just plainly, how undeniable does the Academy consider Kate Blanchett here? I mean, and by that, I mean, how how much do a lot of these voters feel compelled to vote for her still? I think a lot of them do. I think that Kate Blanchett still winning Critics' Choice, even amid the outpouring of love for that movie and the recognition that it is Michelle's movie, was to me a real indication that it's going to be difficult to beat her. Um, and sure, you throw in a wild card like Andrea, and that can only help uh, the challenger. So that's, I think, where we're at right now. This is a weird year where I don't know that the SAG Awards will actually tell us much of anything, yeah. <laughs> you know, about this race. I mean, they, they're not they're not always predictive. You know, obviously, um, Viola Davis won for Ma Rainey uh, recently and didn't continue that to an Oscar win. But like, you know, normally you could be like, okay, so what's the temperature of, of where people are voting? But I think this year, because you have this weird anomaly happening with the acting branch with the Riceboro nomination, we really have to rely on the other crafts to to sort this out for us. And unfortunately, we won't really know what yeah. that is until Oscar night. 
it's really interesting looking back because I think Best Actress famously doesn't line up with Best Picture all that often. It's not happened with Nomadland, which I think the further we get away from 2020, the more it's kind of like a, an outlier Oscar stat year because it was so <laughs> strange. Um, and before that, I think it was Million Dollar Baby. It's just rare to get the two narratives of the star of a Best Picture front writer and also a veteran kind of getting her due at long last. Like it was Hilary Swank and then it was um, Gwyneth Paltrow and Shakespeare and Love before that. Like that's a strange combo that I don't know that Oscar precedent can really tell us where it's going to land. Mm-hmm. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's go to supporting actress because I want to talk more about Tar when it gets ranked towards voting. But first, uh, supporting actress theory from JP. Uh, speaking of Oscar history, uh, I'm seeing a parallel in the supporting actress race to 1996 when a legend from a film that had no other top line support cruised through the precursor period only to lose in a shocking upset to a strong but not terribly heralded performance from a film that had much more support. So any chance Angela Bassett loses to Carrie Condon? So th- what they're referring to is when Juliette Binoche, in a surprise upset, beat Lauren Bacall for The Mirror Has Two Faces. Um, Juliette Binoche was in The English Patient, obviously. And I think the big thing there is that The English Patient won Best Picture. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's the fate that Banshees of Inisherin is looking at. So that could be one of two things. That means there's there's not as much support for that film overall in terms of winning. And so Condon won't get swept up in that tide in the way that Binoche was kind of looked at. As, you know, she was just sort of like along for the ride with the rest of that uh, victory. Um, or like we were saying about the tar thing with Blanchett, it's like maybe here's the chance where you can give Banshees of Anishir an award. An award. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is definitely a possibility that we or I at least am overestimating the uh, willingness of the Academy to vote for a Marvel movie in an acting category. Yeah. Um, I think that the the thing that differentiates this a little bit though, is that Bassett, she just has a kind of different narrative than e- even Lauren Bacall did, uh, how, you know, 27 years ago um, for a variety of reasons. And so I think that Bassett, you know, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, like there was some sort of Twitter conflict about like, I can't believe that she's going to win an Oscar for that movie. And it's like, no, no, no. Angela Bassett will win an Oscar for her career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just so happens that she's in this movie that she's good in. But um, I, I think that sort of legacy win thing feels like a stronger story than even Lauren McCall did. Cause she had an honorary Oscar either before then or right after then. And, um, I don't know. I, I see. I think it's a great parallel to draw um, and maybe should give Carrie Condon reason to hope as she sips champagne to Santa Barbara. But uh, I don't know if that's going to play out. One difference, too, is Black Panther is a huge blockbuster and one that has 
there's a lot of awareness of it below the line um, to the extent that you have all these crafts nominations, Ruth Carter, a costume frontrunner again, and those are the people who are also voting for the acting categories. In the case of Bacall in that film, I believe it's only other nomination was for original song. And it wasn't a movie just seen on that scale or considered on that scale. Obviously, just because a movie is huge does not mean that it has a huge fan base within the Academy. But I do think Bassett really benefits from being in a film that has so much visibility and that has where there's so much respect for various aspects of it um, because she's not the lone you know, representative of it here. And that coupled with this narrative you're talking about, Richard, is very um, useful in terms of her going all the way. I do think she's a little vulnerable. Um, it's hard to say that a Marvel movie can cross the finish line here until it happens, but I just don't think we've seen the momentum for Carrie Condon um, to pull off that kind of upset. If it happens somewhere like BAFTA, then that's a different story. There's also the matter that, like, depending on how you look at it, Benoche kind of was the lead of English Patient. Hmm. And it was yes. maybe category fraud-ish. Maybe Kristen Scott Thomas should have been in supporting and Benoche should have been the lead. And that would have been a to- totally different story. But Call wins that, absolutely. But Carrie Condon is not the lead of Banshees of Inisherin. I don't think there's any mistaking that. I get kind of nervous when we talk about Angela Bassett maybe being vulnerable. And I, I this connects to a question from Frank about Viola Davis's uh, snub that I kind of forgot to get to. But, you know, the the precarious position of a black woman in an Oscar race um, is really an undeniable historical fact. And I think even disconnected from the Marvel movie, that's something worth considering. And I don't know how much Oscar voters are going to think about and how important that is. But I think Angela Bassett losing, even I would be very excited for Carrie Condon, but her losing at this point would be a real problem in what has already been a tricky year for yes. acting races. Not that they vote that way, but it would be. No, but like, I think we can all kind of sit here from the outside and be like, just like, will each individual voter to just go with it and say Angela Bassett deserves an Oscar, which she absolutely does. It's always a dangerous situation when they feel safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's the trick because I don't think that, I don't think they think about it. They clearly do not, but um, there is you know, it goes back to Richard's Glenn Close pet theory, when there is a certain amount of comfort, uh, especially with a body that has so under-recognized black women, I think there's just a, you could see the tendency for a lot of voters to look at another direction. And if enough do, then we've got a situation on our hands. Well, especially if people think that Bassett's going to win and they say, well, okay, she'll win, but I'm not going to vote for the Marvel movie. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing to in Condon, someone like Condon's favor is that, like, every major actor in that movie got nominated. So, like, there's clearly a huge well of support for that movie, at least in one branch. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you kind of wonder, like, the Riseborough scandal about whether or not she or Anna de Armas kicked out Deadweiler or Viola Davis. Like, does that have ripple effects? Are people going to try to course correct in other categories? Again, I don't really think that your one discrete voter after voter after voter thinks that way. But, yeah, I, 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 I feel strongly about Bassett winning, but that's really a tenuous thing, even though I feel strongly about it. I do wonder at mm. what point in the campaign season do these award strategists go, oh no, she's still the front runner. Like we're so screwed because there is, <laughs> yeah. it, there is also a point where it, it does become dangerous because voters do want to, I don't know, like feel like they're spreading the love if there's an obvious front runner. And, and I, I do agree. It makes me nervous as well, but uh, I don't know. I, I hope it, I hope what happens. I hope it happens for her. 
And just, just a really broad point as we look at all these acting races is we haven't had an industry vote yet. I mean, we've had mm. Critics' Choice, we've had journalists, and we've had the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, still a very small group. So we still don't even know if she is the front runner with industry voters. So there are there is still that big hump to go over. With I do think she's going to win SAG. That seems like a pretty easy hurdle for her her to clear. But that hasn't even happened yet. I hope she. Um, I I would like her to not use her phone in her acceptance speeches. Please. I'm so just, glad you said just I write like a such a crank thinking know, that at the I know. Close. But it's like it just it just we immediately think people aren't paying attention when you're looking at your phone. So just use a little piece of paper. But her speeches are so beautiful that I yeah. think whatever she says at SAG will be worth it, but maybe a little piece of paper. Is <laughs> my one suggestion. To go back to Benoche just for a second, I feel like the the English patient comparison is everything everywhere all at once. Like that is the the, the uh, correlation here. And I think if it weren't both Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Shu, that would be the theory I'd put myself behind. But it is hard for me yep. to see one of them prevailing over the other. Yeah. But I think we're all glad they both got nominated. So I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine <laughs> with that outcome. Yeah. But this is not like a Judas and the Black Messiah situation where yeah. Daniel Kaluuya is clearly the push. I think it's it's a little murkier between the two of them. Um, to jump back a little bit, because I did have, there was a question from Frank about actress that I forgot to get into, but um, he was asked if Ana de Armas' nomination is an example of the Academy saying, we're so sorry you went through all that for a terrible movie. Here, have a cookie. <laughs> he feels like that is a type of nomination that happens, but couldn't think of any examples. Can any of you think of other examples? Because I'm thinking of like Monster or like other movies where people really endured something, but that wasn't, you know, that movie wasn't as reviled the way the blonde was. I, I just think that kind of work tends to be very admired for whatever reason. And I, I think she's fantastic in the movie, but it, it just stands out more. She was the undeniable face of a very polarizing movie. But I thought a little bit more about this nomination, and I think what really carried her over was the international contingent mm. of the Academy. Um, she was nominated for the BAFTA. She was nominated for London Film Critics Circle. And in general, that movie, when it premiered at Venice, played a lot better than when it came to North America. So... I don't know how much of a surprise it was. The fact that she also got in at SAG. I mean, there was just clearly enough support for her from various groups where I think, you know, myself included, a lot of us thought that this movie is just way too divisive to carry through at the end of the day. But there was the support for performance was pretty much always there. Um, And the fact that it had played so much better in Europe when it first premiered was probably our hint that we should have always been taking her a lot more seriously. I can't, yeah, I can't think of a movie that was um, this disliked, but you think about like um, Andra Day, like that movie was mediocre, but she got the nomination and and maybe even like Jackie. I mean, a lot of people didn't like that movie, but Natalie got the nomination, but there's nothing that really, that I can remember that the movie was this strongly disliked. What about The Wife? What about Clint Close? <laughs> Maybe not as reviled as Blonde. It, it, it's a very high bar. <laughs> I feel like with that movie, it was kind of the opposite, where it just didn't inspire any strong reaction. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know. I mean, I think it, it, the, the closest comparison I can think of, uh, even though the, the, the movies, the, the broader movies narratives don't match up at all, is something like DiCaprio and the Revenant. You know, mm. it's like mm-hmm. Ana de Armas went through the equivalent of like sleeping in a horse guts or whatever, whatever the hell Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio does in that movie. You know, that's that is, you know, in a very gendered Academy view, like 
that's the tough role, you know, yeah. and, and Ana de Armas has to go through hell in that movie and be treated horribly in that movie. And, and while playing, you know, this icon of Hollywood uh, lore. And I, I think I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and he said, the minute I knew that she was definitely in was when Colin Farrell took time from his, yeah. mm-hmm. was it Globe speech or whatever, mm-hmm. to be like, to turn to her and say, by the way, you were amazing in that movie. Yeah. You know, it's that actory respect um, that, that, that you can feel and have, I think we've all felt for, for months now, you know, like that, that movie has a very different life among critics and just sort of casual viewers than it does uh, among the industry. Uh, well, speaking of divisive movies, let's go to Melinda in Vermont, who wanted us to just talk about ranked choice voting in the Best Picture race. Um, she flagged that it probably won't help her beloved with Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking, which I agree with. Those are also divisive Correct. movies. Um, <laughs> David, I usually turn to you on the ranked choice voting stuff because I think you can wrap your head around it better than I can. Um, how do you see this shaking out? I think it really helps the movie like Banshees um, to our earlier conversation about Carrie Condon. Um you know, The Power of the Dog got a lot of nominations in the same way Everything Everywhere did, but it was also, nonetheless, a movie that had its detractors, Movie, a movie that was somewhat polarizing. Um, I don't think Everything Everywhere All at Once has that degree of difficulty, but I, I do think there's going to be a contingent that maybe, you know, especially among the older Academy members who just do not get this movie, no matter how much they've heard about it, no matter how, you know, lovely the cast is on the trail, they're just not going to get it. Which is understandable. I don't think the movie needs them to win. I think it is still the front runner to win. But I do believe that Banshees really checks a lot of boxes um, because it is both funny and moving and small scale, but also has a certain profundity. It will pop up highly on, I think, the vast majority of ballots. And it also was nominated in more areas than expected. And it has four acting nominations. And it has, uh, in Martin McDonough, a filmmaker they've returned to again and again, um, who is finally nominated for a director for the first time. There's just a lot in its favor, in its column, that I do think would show up more on a preferential ballot than it would for everything everywhere. That said, I also just think that on the ground, temperature we were talking about is the best way to gauge how a movie performs on preferential ballot and no one is doing better than everything everywhere at that game right now. I think the temptation would be to, to look at the last McDonough film nominated for Best Picture, uh, Three Billboards, which lost mm-hmm. to Shape of Water. So you look at everything everywhere and you're like, okay, a weird sci-fi movie beats a McDonough movie, you know? <laughs> but right. I think the difference is that Three Billboards was pricklier, it was more controversial, whereas Banshees does have a sentimental quality to kind of match maybe a shape of water or even match an everything everywhere. So mm-hmm. I think it's a very different, I think that, you know, obviously the Academy is not thinking about Martin McDonough's theater career, but like Banshees is much more in his wheelhouse, much more his kind of thing than was three billboards. And and so I think it's a much stronger challenger. And I think, you know, we, we talk about the ranked ballots. How many ballots is Banshees likely to be number two on a lot? Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 whereas the number one ballot could be split among lots of things, there are people who are going to vote for All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, <laughs> like, and what would their number two be? It would maybe be Banshees. So I, I think that's that that movie's going to win a big award, I think, and I just don't know which one. Well, it's either Colin Farrell or screenplay, right? Yeah, below the line, yeah, or below Best Picture, yeah, yeah. But, like I don't know, maybe is Spielberg as strong as we think he is? Like uh, maybe McDonough wins there? I, I don't know. Yeah, I do, I, I do think the preferential ballot also 
probably helps Fablemans because I do think it's probably going to end up two, three on a lot of ballots, uh, if not one. I mean, obviously there are people who don't love it, but I just think with that ballot, we can't count these films out, you know, and and a lot of times the number one film doesn't win. So I I think it, it definitely makes this more interesting. It's a far better movie, but it's it's kind of the Green Book slot in a way. Um, it's going to appeal to the older demographic a little bit more. Um, it's not the contender making a lot of noise, but I, I think there's just going to be a lot of, exactly to your point, Rebecca, baseline love for Spielberg and respect for the film that could translate to a pretty strong average, um, which depending on the rest of the votes go, could take it a pretty long way. Just to be clear, do any of you see the ranked choice ballot allowing something other than everything everywhere all at once to win? Like, again, we don't want to be, call something a front runner at this phase because this is how that's what makes the wind shift. But I, I still don't see the math adding up for anything else. I think it makes Banshees competitive. I yeah. would not predict it right now, but I, that, I have it at a number two because I do see it ranking very highly on a range of ballots mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is not true, I think, of any of the other nominees necessarily. Yeah, Everything Everywhere All at Once is that little bit divisive in a way that could be interesting to see how it shakes yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, I, I never bought into, there was a kind of contingent months and months ago that were like, this is not a best picture contender. There's hot dog fingers in this movie. And that always struck me as ridiculous, especially when the writing was on the wall. I mean, it, it became pretty obvious a while ago that this was a strong player, but that was coming from a place of, look at who votes for these awards. And the Academy has changed so dramatically that, you know, you could say the same thing about Parasite before it won, or even Nomadland. But there is still the situation of, if not the movie with the hot dog fingers and the incredibly weird at times sense of humor, then what? And that's, I suppose, what we're left with. I think right now it's Banshees, um, if not. Uh, So while we're in kind of like awards stat land, uh, Marina had a really interesting question. That's something I think we talked about a little bit with the BAFTA nominations, because they have a jury that determines some of the nominees in some of their categories. And again, David, I'm going to make you explain this because you always get a grip on it. But Got to get my BAFTA doc up. (laughs) What Marina said was, so the Oscars have seemingly always had a problem with excessive influence impacting who gets nominated and wins. But do you think switching to a juried system or nominating committees for the nominations might help with that? Um, and we should say that, you know, there are nominating committees for things like the shortlist for documentary feature and international feature, which have helped some problems in those categories in years past. Um, but David, do you want to explain how the, how BAFTA does it? Because, you know, we assume that's how we got things like Gina Prince-Bythewood nominated over there, which couldn't have it at the Oscars. And it, it does seem to be working in that very large awards group as well. Sure. I mean, it's, it's impossible to describe the BAFTA system <laughs> as this general, you know, one-size-fits-all system because it truly differs category by category, and they've changed it, I believe, every year slightly since Great. they started Thanks, it. guys. But in general, the way that the system works is the top two, or in this case, top three popular vote nomination getters of the whole chapter of BAFTA automatically proceed to nominations and then a small jury uh, that consists of a diverse group of people, both professionally, racially, um, and in just in terms of what they're bringing to the table, uh, determine the rest of the nominees, both on a long list and then in the final set of nominations. And this was instituted because BAFTA's track record of honoring actors of color and directors of color particularly was dismal even compared to the Academy. So, 
um, yeah, you get a Gina Prince-Bythewood because of that. The Woman King did not perform otherwise, but this was a directorial achievement. And if you can get a small enough batch, you know, you could think of it like um, Daniel Deadweiler winning the Gotham Award. Um, Which is also a, a full jury selection for winners and nominees. Yeah. A smaller group that's really deliberating and considering the nomination slate and who should be representing this category this year for BAFTA um, is going to elevate her in a way that a mass popular vote uh, of industry voters may not. Um, I actually think a better place to look, though, is the Emmys, who had a, a screening system years and years ago uh, for winners, which is why Jim Parsons always won for the Big Bang Theory, um, where they would have smaller committees voting on winner, acting winners. They, they would watch all of the episodes they would have to sign affidavits and all that. They would be in a room together often, and they would do it. And the problem with that system was you would tend to get a very white, very certain age uh, group. People who, who have were the willing, time to do that kind of thing. Exactly. People who were willing to take all that time to do that uh, and then to deliberate because there was there were discussions involved in that as well. Um, I think that system had a lot of merit, and I think that the Emmys lost a lot when they got rid of it because popular shows just tended to drown everything else out, um, or tend to now. But the, the problems with that, I think, are the problems you would see with a similar system with the Oscars, unless there were mandates for you know representation on whatever kind of committee or jury it was, and on, like BAFTA has exactly what the division would be between popular vote getters and juried selections and how that balance would be. Cause I don't think BAFTA's figured it out. It's a weird system. Um, but I, it's a, it's a concerted effort to make the nominations and winners more diverse. Um, and I don't think they've gotten there yet, but they've definitely made strides. Is there a good system for this? It's like the way that you're describing that is so complicated and so hard to understand. I mean, and like this is why awards consultants exist to figure this out, but it makes it me just feel like you can't get a perfect voting body no matter what you do. I just also don't know if the Academy members would put up with a larger scale. You can't be trusted with this. Yeah. Mm. You know, uh, um, yeah. there's not that there's not ego in BAFTA. Of course there is. But like, I think the Academy is this, you know, the sort of they invented the game of these awards and whatever. Like, I think that there would be enough uproar among individual members if they were tried in, you know, it's one thing to do it for international feature or doc or whatever, where they're like, a lot of these members probably can't be bothered to watch those movies, you know, uh, until they're told which five to watch. Um, but in other categories, I think it would be a really steep, long uphill climb to try to get anyone to agree or, or sign off on um, having people do their kind of early homework for them. Yeah, I think, the Academy is doing the best it can with diversifying the membership, both internationally and, um, you know, representing a wider range of voter. But I think that's all they can do is just increase this membership and try their best. We clearly are still seeing a lot of systemic issues, but I don't think going to a jury process would be the solution. There's just so much politics involved with the Academy. I just can't imagine that working. Well, the, the membership increase has like, you know, with some obvious you know hurdles, I think it has been a huge improvement. Like, I think we're just seeing, you know, the idea of having another Oscar so white at this point is kind of unimaginable. Like, watch me say that it happens next year. But like, <laughs> it feels like there has been so much progress by increasing that by expanding the voting pool that, you know, we can see how that process plays out some more. Yeah. I mean, I think this two Leslie thing does 
make us look at how much one branch can be influenced when we're talking about nominations. And, mm-hmm. and I, it sounds like that's something the Academy is going to be looking at. So there's still things to fix, but I, I don't think a jury is the solution. It's also just harder to get a handle on the membership because it's so globalized and expansive now. Like you can't do a screening <laughs> for a jury that's representative of the Academy in person. You just can't because yeah. they're all over the place. Right. And for that same reason, it would be really hard to institute something like the Tonys, although they've kind of suspended that this year, but like where in order to vote, you have to have seen things. You have to be logged as having watched it at home or at a screening or whatever. But we're talking about nominations, not even the winners here. So like, how would you filter that? Like you have to see every movie that comes out, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's just it's too big and vast uh, a sort of organization um, to put any strict rules in place about how people watch things and what they watch and, and all that. It's it's kind of an intractable problem in a way beyond what Rebecca said, just trusting in a bigger, more diverse group of voters. Um, well, another question about how awards work, for, um, and this one talking more about the Grammys, which is something we're certainly not experts in, but I think is an interesting comparison from Danny, who just asked, do you think the recent Grammys being given to white artists like Bonnie Raitt and Harry Styles in lieu of brilliant works from artists of color alters the perception of entertainment awards in general, including the Oscars? And if so, can the Oscars be at the forefront of changing that? Um, and the the membership changes that we're talking about are you know part of what we were just saying. And Rebecca, I feel like you've done more of the reporting on the Academy Among Us. I mean, it does seem like there are a lot of people inside the Academy who are going to look at the Grammys and be like, okay, how do we not make that mistake? And how do we keep, keep improving on what the work they've been doing in the past decade? Well, I feel like <laughs> the Oscars have had to look at themselves and say that since, you know, the Oscars so white yes. uh, back to back years. And, and to me, as someone who doesn't cover or watch the Grammys, I was like, oh, it's nice to see that other giant voting bodies have these problems still, because <laughs> I don't think the uh, Academy is going to be at the forefront of changing this issue, because I think it's something they've already been struggling with for years and years. And it, it's so hard to fix systemic issues. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about starts from which films get greenlit and which stars can greenlight a movie. And, and that's not something the Academy can fix. So... I think we're just dealing with decades and decades of issues that have to be fixed. I I don't know if voters are paying that much, Academy voters are paying that much attention to what happens at the Grammys. I I mean, I know everyone is mad about Beyonce not winning, so maybe they are. And maybe Beyonce will be the one to change the Academy. But Beyonce um, didn't win an Oscar last year. So, you know, she's just covering all the award shows now. (laughs) Um, So to me, it's I I remain hopeful, but I, I do think... These things happen every year at award shows, so it's just change is slow, unfortunately, and and it does feel like this is sort of the end of the pipeline when it comes to change. Hmm. Not to be a downer again. Yeah. Nice. I feel I, like I'm always such a bummer on this topic. <laughs> well, here's something that can lift us all back up also from Danny. As far as I can tell, there's only one other year other than this year, Tar and Avatar, where one best picture title is contained in another. The other was from 2009, up and up in the air. That's all. <laughs> I can't think. I didn't do the research I, to figure I, out if there were more. I'm going to guess that that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember in 2009 typing up, up in the air over and over again and feeling like I was losing my mind. I mean, technically, 2015, Mad Max Fury Road, and it, the, the technical working title was Bridge of Spies, colon Fury Road. So <laughs> that's not listed on Wikipedia or anything, but that was... There was a road to get over that bridge. It's obvious. It's yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. And Spotlight did take place in rooms... And room is on it. So, yeah. 
<laughs> um, all right. Another awards are a question going back to Jonah. And this is something I don't know how maybe people listening to this show, normal people probably don't know this. Um, I wonder if <laughs> there there's are no any... normal people listening to this, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if you think there's any possibility that the Academy will ever change the best international feature Oscar so that it's awarded to the film's director or producer rather than to the country. Um, and it says it's absurd that great international directors like Fellini, Bergman, Kurosawa, Bunuel, Tati, Farhadi, etc. officially never won any competitive Oscars, even though they directed films that won the Best International Film Award. Um, yeah, doesn't this seem like, I'm sure it's more complicated, but it just seems like something that, yes, they should just do that, right? Yes. It feels like the director branch is trying to course correct that by, you know, we, we, we now have a sort of like fifth foreign slot yeah, <laughs> in exactly. Best Director, it feels like. Um, although Jonah says something about like the director gets to keep the Oscar. I don't think that's true. Don't, doesn't it would the, depend country on the country keep right? the trophy? Like, I don't yeah. know, like, does the does the France film office have a trophy case? It probably depends on the country. And uh, this is probably something we should dig into more, but I would imagine it just varies from film to film because, yeah, it's not theirs technically, but I'm sure some were able to keep it. It is such an odd thing. Like, it feels like when, you know, when the Academy started, it was like, well, these directors are all coming from all these countries we don't know about, so you know, no one will know the name of them. But now it's, you know, people like... Bong Joon-ho and Oscar Verhadi, like it is crazy that these huge international auteurs don't have their names on the statue, even if it feels like a small thing to those of us on the outside. Yes. Well, Bong Joon-ho has an Oscar with his name on it anyway, so he he figured, he ran the table, he figured it out. <laughs> um, okay, to Julian, now we all get to be cynical. Um, my question is a cynical one. Which Oscar win that you experienced live bummed you out the most? And Richard, you have some answers prepared for this. Um, yeah, I have recent ones. I mean, I'm sure there are ones from the 90s that I was, as a kid, really upset about. <laughs> but um, the two that sprang immediately to mind were, I think, the best performance by a big movie star that he's given his whole career, Bradley Cooper not winning for Star is Born over Rami Malek. Uh, that bummed me out because I, I think from Toronto, was like, well, Bradley Cooper is going to win Best Actor. That's all sewn up. And then a couple months later, <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody was like, uh-uh, <laughs> uh, which I did not see coming at all. Um, that one was uh, sad to me because I think that Cooper really um, just gives his whole self to that role and he's really great in it. And also he had, you know, wrote and directed it. So that, that counted for a lot. Um, maybe, you know, Maestro will correct that. Um, yeah. And then the other one is kind of a meaner one, I guess. Um, I don't like I, Tanya at all. I think it's one of the worst movies to come to ever win an Oscar. <laughs> uh, Allison Janney, who is a great actress, but was funnier in this same exact role in Drop Dead Gorgeous in 1998. <laughs> uh, and I think that Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, who is like the core of that movie in a lot of ways, I think she should have won. Um, and that bummed me out. I didn't, but I think the thing is though, when you say which bummed you out, is like, I wasn't surprised at all by either of those wins. So maybe yeah. I'm not even answering the question correctly. I think for me the answer is Green Book. Ooh, that's what I was really, going to say, David. I really, I really thought about it, and I, you know, it's it's a big answer. It's kind of an obvious one, but if I'm really taking myself back to the moment I was sitting and watching, and I felt that bummed out and this the most, it it was when Green Book won. I mean, it's an easy answer for me to be honest. It's so funny because when this question said, uh, it says like that you saw live, I assumed they meant that I was in the room for oh. And like, I remember. Well then, your Oscar privilege. <laughs> no, because you're in, I was backstage or in the press room that year for Green Book. And you just could kind of feel the oxygen leave the room because everyone was like, it's not a surprise, but we were all kind of hopeful 
that some it might have been something else and and I, yeah that memory sticks with me just the the feeling in the room was just sad similarly i remember standing on the green and white carpet before the oscar party watching on monitors when they announced olivia coleman over glenn close mm. and like I think that's a fun win in a vacuum, you know, like, yay, she's great. And it's really led to a lot of great things for Olivia Coleman. But like, just the kind of like, Glenn Close wore a gold dress to the ceremony. I mean, which was hardly hubris on her part. But like, (laughs) like that, I genuinely felt for about 20 minutes, like sad about. Same. Um, Same. And, and um, that's no knock on Coleman at all. It's just like, this was supposed to be finally the end of this Susan Lucci story for poor Glenn Close. And it just didn't happen because I don't know, in a past life, she did something wrong. <laughs> I don't I don't know what, what, what happened with Glenn Close. But like, that that did actually bum me out genuinely, I, because I felt so sorry for her, even though she's fine. Uh, well, this gets my general theory that the 2018 Oscars were just way more cursed than we realized at the time. And like, <laughs> as the years go by, it becomes clearer because like the Olivia Coleman win, I watch it regularly. I loved it. The um, the shallow performance, obviously, with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. But like so many of the other wins, you just look back at and you're just like, is that really where we landed? Like, that was what we did. Uh, I don't know how we make up for it, but. Um, I was trying to pick one, and you guys have hit most of the highlights, but I was realizing that there are two Paul Thomas Anderson screenplay wins that I remember feeling angry about. Uh, Inherent Vice lost to The Imitation Game, an adapted screenplay in 2014, which is nuts. And then uh, just last year, Licorice Pizza lost to the screenplay for Belfast. Just don't feel like either of those were the right choice. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson should have an Oscar by now, and both of those were excellent opportunities to make that happen. Do you think it's yeah. just something with him not really campaigning? Like those other winners campaigned yes. the crap out of the season, yep. which is interesting and unfair for sure. In fact, it was kind of like the consolation prize for movies that at one point had seemed like best picture mm, front runners. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's like there was a screenplay too, right? We'll just we'll give it that, <laughs> you know. Because um, they're not screenplay movies. I wonder if Fiona Apple making that face back in the Magnolia year. It's just cursed Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> people remember that and they say, no, we don't have any sour grapes here. We're not going to let you in. Uh, people look at him being married to Maya Rudolph with four kids. It's like, you have enough. You're fine. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Uh, well, we've not gotten to all the questions because you guys are wonderful and send us so many, but we're going to wrap on a good closing point and I promise get to some of these more later on. We have many uh, Oscar weeks ahead of us. Um, but Rory, who had written in earlier to uh, ponder whether it'd be the first year without any British nominees, which is not, but there are a lot of Irish nominees, which he also predicted, um, just said, with an unprecedented number of first-time acting nominees this year, we've been able to cross several names off the list of performers often discussed, including on this podcast, as those bound to receive Academy recognition soon. Andrew Risebro, Colin Farrell, Brian Tyree Henry, Barry Keoghan, Anna Darmus, etc. Um, so he basically asked who's next and hinted that he thought maybe Jonathan Majors uh, would be one. I think he'd be high on all of our lists. So who other than Jonathan Majors? Um, Richard, I know I, I picked some too, but I want to stop talking so you go first. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great fun question to think about. I think this would be an easier question to answer 15 years ago when there actually was a sort of like robust film industry that like oh, was God. cultivating new Jesus. film talent instead of putting everyone on, <laughs> on t- in TV. Um, but brutal. Uh, sorry, that was, I'm thinking about that SNL skit from this yeah, week, yeah. weekend. Taunting. <laughs> Taunting. My mother emailed it to me and she was like, isn't this funny? And I was like, yeah, it's also really depressing <laughs> where the joke is that no one knows what movies are these days. But um but no, there are people who are simmering. I think on Anya Taylor Joy uh, feels like a big one. She's now been in a whole vast array of different kinds of projects. Um, obviously, Queen's Gambit was huge for her on TV, but like, um, I think the menu, even though it wasn't really that Oscary, was a great like lead performance in a movie that made money. And now, just even more people are lining up to to cast her and things. So I think she feels due. I think, or, or not due, but like primed, primed yeah. for something. Um, whether it's a supporting or a lead, I don't know. But um, I think Harris Dickinson, who's in Triangle of Sadness, he's been kind of simmering for a while. He's really good. He again is in a vast array of commercial and artsy stuff. But then, if you turn to TV and look at who is like you know, winning things are just sort of being feted all over the place. I think DC Nash could be an interesting uh, person if you put her in. I, I mean, she hasn't really done many films, but like if you put her in the right role, I think that there's obviously a huge amount of of, of affection for her within um, the, the industry. Mm. Um, Recent little Goldman guest. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. And I love that interview. I, I listened to that while in the supermarket in Park City. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Uh, but also, I don't know, in the right role, Natasha Leone. Yeah, that seems like a supporting actress statue oh, uh, waiting to happen. Maybe you lead. Don't let me limit her opportunities. Um, I'll jump ahead. I wrote down a couple. Uh, I feel like we said Danielle Deadweiler um, when she didn't get nominated. I just want to put that up for the record. Um, and then I've often thought back to the cast of Widows when I'm trying to think of who's going to get nominated next, because many of them have been since then. This year, we knocked out both Brian Tyree Henry and Colin Farrell. Um, so I put Elizabeth Debicki down. I just feel like that's coming uh, at some point. And Michelle Rodriguez, you know, yeah. I think get get Michelle Rodriguez the right role. You, she might surprise us. Um I also put down someone from the cast of the menu, Nicholas Holt, who kind oh, of... Oh, yeah. He just feels like he's been kicking around. He's How many Oscar Best Picture nominees has he been in at this point? It's several. Um, and, you know, he's been doing good work on The Great and for getting attention there. Uh, like you said, Richard, a lot of these people are just over in television. Um, I also put Julia Garner on that list. She's got a gazillion Emmys. I don't... I mean, I guess she would make movies. Like, why wouldn't she make movies? But she's been so successful in television. I kind of wonder. Well, she had the Madonna thing sewn up, but then then (laughs) it fell apart. Well, when they make the documentary about the Madonna boot camp and the movie that (laughs) didn't happen, uh, she'll she'll get that documentary statue. Um, 
And then uh, maybe the Black Panther movies are the other version of Widows for me in terms of actors who just will be nominated eventually. Because I was thinking about Winston Duke. I, I looked up like best performances of 2020 or something just to jog my memory of people who were good, but we overlooked. And a list had um, Winston Duke in Seven Days, a movie I did, you know, it's fine Nine movie. Days. Nine oh, days. See, see, I don't even remember, remember the, your days, <laughs> Katie. <laughs> um, I don't remember the movie that well. Didn't like it that much, but I remember him being really good in it, and he's obviously great in the Black Panther movies. Um, which then, of course, leads to Michael B. Jordan, who feels just like as the, every year goes by, it becomes more and more glaring that he has been nominated. Um, and who knows? Creed and he Creed. has the kind of robbed status of yes, Creed. exactly. Yeah, you know? he's so kind he's of in really the Colin doing. Farrell yeah. um, like position where it's like, when are you finally going to get this done? And Black Panther. I mean, people really were like, he's going to yeah. get a supporting actor Absolutely. nomination for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. he and Jonathan Majors have Creed three coming, so maybe we get both of them, you, you know, done at once. And he's directing. Maybe he's just going to get, like, a directing career. And he's just so Oscar prolific and so, like, he knows every Like, it just will happen eventually. And um, But if he's 50 when it happens, I think it's going to be a, a real missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go. Yeah, go. All right. Uh, in terms of... It will happen. Matter of time, Zendaya feels like an mm-hmm. obvious one to me. The first time she stars, I mean, I guess Malcolm and Marie was the chance, but like the next time she stars in a movie, it will happen. Yeah, I, I'm not counting that. Remember that year's an anomaly. <laughs> yeah, 2020 We say, did that really happen? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God Andrew Day got nominated for that. I really hated that movie. Um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, um, this year had a lot of actors where it was like, Wow, it really took this long. And Hugh Grant kind of feels in that category Ooh. to me, especially as his taste has gotten a lot more interesting, particularly on the TV side. He just feels like very close to that film role. And Florence Foster Jenkins, he was very close. Um, I feel like he'll get it. And then just two TV actors who have won several Emmys already and who feel have a ton of range and just feel kind of bound for it. One is Elizabeth Moss, who's just focused on Handmaid's Tale, but she's done great film work already. And the other is Uzo Aduba, uh, who is a pretty brilliant actor who has won for multiple projects. She's won for acting opposite Kate Blanchett, uh, as well as in a sort of, you know, phenomenon Netflix series. So, um, so yeah, I think those are two, you know, TV is just such a, the place where actors tend to gear up for their first Oscar campaigns. And those two feel like actors who, where it's quick, fast approaching. Okay. I can wrap it up. Um, I don't know what Paul Dano has to do to get an acting (laughs) nomination, but he's just, he's been in so many nominated films. He delivers really incredible performances. So I'm hopeful it's coming for him soon. He's closer now after Fablemans than he has been since like There Will Be Blood, though. Yeah, I hope so. And then um, I really want to keep an eye on Kelvin Harrison Jr. I think Mm. he was incredible in Waves and Monster and he had a small role in Elvis, but I'm um, and I know he has a movie coming up, um, Chevalier, that um, doesn't have a lot of buzz around it. But I just think he's going to land a lead role that's going to really show off his abilities soon. Um, and then I do want to shout out um, two actors in Babylon, which, as we know, didn't have the the run we thought it would. But uh, Lee Jun Lee and Javon Adepo are both really incredible in that movie. And I do feel like um, we should pay attention to them and they'll be they'll be back. I'm curious about Diego Calva, too. I was mm-hmm. kind of revisiting that movie, and he's so just magnetic movie star quality in a, in a role that, like, you know, it gives him a lot to do, but, like, he's kind of the straight man and all that craziness. Um, I'd be really interested to see what he does next, too. 
the future is bright. See? We end on an up note. Yeah, we have movie stars. Look at all these people who have exciting work for us to look forward to. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. As we said, the campaign trail will be back in full swing. Um, and we'll, you know, continue answering your listener questions, too. Thank you again so much for sending all of these in. Um, you can keep finding us on Twitter at VF Awards Insider. That's on Instagram as well. Um, and we're on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And if you want to submit questions, email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. Uh, again, we're so grateful to hear from you always. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the reward we hope awaits us when we retire in glory from Little Gold Men goes to Rebecca Ford. Well-dressed Santa Barbara locals. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 